Morning, everybody. Merry almost Christmas to all of you. Um, welcome, family members. I know this is a Sunday when we typically have some out-of-town family visiting, so welcome. Great to have you guys with us this morning. I also want to apologize to you because if you're visiting, this is like the weirdest Christmas series of all time that we're concluding today. So those of you who've been here um, for the last month know that we have been talking about some of the bizarre and unexpected and frankly like dark and sordid stories and characters that God has used to prepare the way for the birth of his son. And so it's an unusual Christmas series because we've been intentionally and specifically focusing on stories that showcase God's use of the difficult and painful and dark. And the way that we've kind of framed that is by looking at the genealogy that starts Matthew's gospel. The gospels are four different biographies from the first century about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of them have some different nuances. Matthew chooses to start his, which is the first one in our arrangement of the Bible, with a genealogy. And this is kind of the first set of names in it. It's an unusual genealogy in a number of ways. We'll talk about some more of them later. But the thing we've been focusing on is the inclusion in his genealogy of four women. Now, in the first century world, if you're writing a genealogy, you kind of select and arrange the people that you want to use to showcase kind of your, your best face forward. You're trying to impress. You're trying to make the main character of your story look as good as possible. And Matthew just straight up does not do that. And one of the ways that he doesn't do that is by including these women. In the first century, you would not see women's names in a genealogy. And not only does Matthew include four women, as we've seen over the last month, he includes four women, all of whom have incredibly difficult stories, all of whom have interactions with the family of Abraham that don't necessarily make the family of Abraham look particularly good. Most of them are Canaanite or other Gentiles who are not from Israel. Bizarre choice to include them. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the story of the fourth one, Bathsheba, or as Matthew says, the wife of Uriah. We'll talk about why I think he says that later. Um, we're going to focus on that one in a little bit, but in order to kind of see the bigger purpose behind why Matthew is arranging his genealogy this way, we're going to have to go back farther than that, go back to where Matthew begins. Because Matthew starts by saying Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what we're going to do is starting with Abraham kind of take another look at each of these stories just really briefly, kind of a bird's eye view of it. So if, you're, if you haven't been here for the series, I really encourage you to go and listen to the podcast or to watch the videos on our website um, and get the full kind of picture of each of these stories because they're strange and incredible, each one of them, and we're not going to have time to do each of them justice again today. But we're going to kind of take that bird's eye view of each story and see how all of them find their resolution in Christmas why Christmas is so significant, and why a series like this actually belongs during this time of the year. So the Bible starts, page one, Genesis chapter one, with God creating a good world and putting in that good world his representatives, humanity, and he, he gives them the special kind of identity and the special calling of representing him on earth. And those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament will know that doesn't go super well, right? It's only page three, and everything has gone completely to chaos. Page three of the Bible, humanity chooses selfishness and rebellion, and they plunge all of creation into this chaos and darkness. And that's the kind of image that I want you to, to keep in mind as we go through each of these stories. The world has been plunged into darkness by sin, and God, for the rest of the Bible story, 
is redeeming and reconciling that dark, broken world. And so when he makes a promise in Genesis chapter 1 to a man named Abraham, I want us to picture that like God lighting a fire in the middle of that dark world, promising this man something and saying, watch what I do to correct this brokenness, to undo this curse. Because by the time we're at Genesis 12 and we meet Abraham, a lot more horrible stuff has already happened. Those 10 chapters in between, the fall and Abraham, are filled with things like the Tower of Babel, like the flood, just story after story of humanity being selfish and evil and making the world a darker and darker place. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, that, that was his name at the time, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God tells Abraham, lighting this fire through your family, through you and your offspring, I'm going to create a nation, and through that nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to push back the darkness. I'm going to undo the curse that was brought into the world in Genesis 3. It's this beautiful moment of promise, and made, by the way, to a man who him and his wife at this point are old and incapable of having children. But in spite of that, God says, it's you. You're the family that I'm going to use. The last thing anybody would expect, frankly. And so you would kind of think, if, you're, if it was your first time reading, that at this point, like, everything's going to start going great. Like, Abraham and his offspring are going to start getting, they're going to make the fire bigger and bigger, make it brighter and brighter, and kind of take the world back and make it all good again. But again, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that doesn't happen. Abraham has some high points. He has some really great things that he does, but he also makes some really horrible mistakes and does some really evil things. And his sons similarly make mistakes. In fact, his son Isaac makes one of the exact same evil actions that his father did when um, both of them at different times kind of pretend, not kind of, completely pretend that their wives are their sisters because their wives are beautiful and they're afraid that other men are going to kill them in order to get to their wives. So they sort of sell their wives out in order to protect their own skin. And that's just one example of the kind of thing that Abraham and his children do. And with each successive generation from Abraham, it's just getting darker and darker. And by the time we arrive at the first story that we told in this series, the story of Judah and Tamar, it's at its most embarrassing and most dark and negative. And we can't retell the whole story, but to make a long story short, Judah, who is the son of Israel, who, and he's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. Judah's one of 12 sons of Jacob or Israel, and he's going to become one of the tribal heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So prominent character, offspring of Abraham. This is the guy who the blessing to the nations is supposed to come from. And instead of blessing the nations, he arranges a marriage for his son to a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And after she becomes a widow twice over to two of his sons, because of their sin and evil, he lies to her, tells her he's going to provide for her, and instead sends her back into a life of isolation and shame. At this point in history, it was expected that Judah would be the one to provide for this widow. He would take care of her, and he doesn't. Instead, he chooses selfishness, lies to her, says he's going to take care of her, and doesn't. And so she 
the Canaanite widow is forced to take matters into her own hands. And she does that in a really bizarre fashion that we can't retell right now. But go listen to that story if you weren't here. But at the end of the day, she ends up pregnant with Judah's child through her kind of way of getting herself back into the family. And here's what makes this amazing. And it kind of sets the pattern and the tone for the rest of the stories that we see in this genealogy. Judah is the one who's supposed to be the son of promise. He's the one through whom God's going to bless the world. He's the guy who you expect everything to go well from. He's the guy who's supposed to fix it. And instead, he is just revealed as this selfish, um, lying, sexually promiscuous man who takes advantage and then abandons and leaves the widow to her own devices, leaves her isolated and alone. And it's Tamar, the Canaanite widow, who is declared at the end of the story to be more righteous than him. Tamar, the one who's unexpected, the one who's the absolute outsider. Again, she's a woman in the ancient world. She's not part of the family of Abraham. And she's the one who's more righteous than Judah. It's through Tamar, not Judah, that God breathes more life into the embers of his promise and kind of keeps that fire building. And again, that pattern you're going to see follow for the rest of the stories of the outsider becoming the insider, of the insider becoming the outsider, of the unexpected one being the one through whom God works. So if you fast forward 400 years after this, Israel's become a nation, they've been rescued from Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years under Moses, and finally they come to the edge of the promised land and they're ready to claim it. And this is a moment where the fire is kind of building back up. It's had some dark times in the last 400 years, but it's getting big. It's getting bright again. The country is being led by Joshua, a man who God commissioned for that task specifically. And Joshua has been told in Joshua chapter one, eight times by God, go in, I've given you the land, given you the land, given you the land. So there's this great sense of expectation that finally the people of Israel, Abraham's offspring, are going to go do what they're supposed to do. They're going to get the land that God promised them. They're going to establish themselves there, and everything's going to be great from here on out. Fire's burning big. It's looking good. And then we get a bizarre story right at the very beginning. It's the first thing that really happens in the book of Joshua. Before they go and take on Jericho, which is the kind of first city-state that's going to be in opposition to them when they come into the promised land, we get a story about two spies who go into Jericho and are sheltered and protected by a woman named Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute and a Canaanite. She's a citizen of Jericho. She is not a powerful person. She's not an impressive person. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's true today, but even more so in the ancient world. You don't become a prostitute because that's what you want to be when you grow up. This is someone who's had a difficult and painful life. She lives near the edge of the outside of the city. She's almost certainly poor. She, lives, she does a, a job that is kind of looked down upon by everyone. And she shelters the spies and makes this incredible confession of faith in Israel's God. She says, we've all heard about what your God has been doing through you guys as you've been coming towards the land. And you know what? I want to be loyal to your God. I'm switching. I'm going to become loyal to you. I'm going to take care of you. I'll watch over you. And I just want to be brought in to the family. I want to be shown covenant faithfulness. And incredibly, she is. She gets brought in. The spies don't even stop for a second. They go, yeah, of course, absolutely. We'll show loyalty to you the way you've shown loyalty to us. 
So the book of Joshua starts with the inclusion of a Canaanite prostitute. Now, we didn't talk about this when we talked about Rahab, but after she's included into the family, which is, happens in Joshua 6 after they take down Jericho, the very next story that happens is a story about a guy named Achan. Some of you guys will be familiar with this. Achan, card-carrying Israelite, couldn't be more different than Rahab. He's part of the family of Abraham. He's in the family. He's one of the good guys. He's part of the nation that's supposed to, again, bless all the nations of earth. But he defies God's specific command to not take any plunder from Jericho. He secretly takes some really good stuff and hides it. And as a result of his disobedience, Israel actually suffers a terrible military loss that results in a ton of people dying. And when he is discovered, he is executed. He's cut off from Israel. So think about this. Back to back, at the start of the book of Joshua, you have the story of the Canaanite prostitute who expresses faith in God and backs up that faith with good action, with loyal behavior. And she is invited into the people of Israel. The very next story is the story of an Israelite, the person who you should expect to be the good guy, who disobeys God and shows a lack of faith, and as a result is cut off from Israel. Insider is outside. Outsider is inside. And once again, just like Tamar, Rahab isn't just brought into the family of Israel. She actually is, becomes part of the family, of line, family line through whom God is specifically working out the answers to his promise to Abraham. So Rahab, brought into the family, becomes part of the people of promise, and the, the Israelite, the guy who you would expect to be the person bringing blessing, he is disobedient, faithless, and cut off. Now, the very next generation after that sees some of the darkest times in Israel's history. This is recorded in the book of Judges. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Judges will know this is like, we don't get hardly any Sunday school stories out of this book. And when we do, by the way, it's because we <laughs> ignore a lot of the details that come later in them. Like Gideon's a great Sunday school story, but we don't tell the ending of Gideon's story in Sunday school. Same with Samson. I learned about Samson in Sunday school. There's a lot of stuff in that. I'm like, how did you do that? Where, like, where, what did I not understand what was going on with Delilah? Anyway, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Story after story in Judges that show just the chaos and disorder and darkness that exists in Israel at this time. The author says multiple times that at this time in Israel, there's no king and everyone in Israel just does what is right in their own eyes. So there's story after story that show that it's just getting darker and darker and worse and worse. And in the middle of that same time period, we get the story of Ruth. This is the story that we told last week. Ruth is not an Israelite either. She's a Moabite. And we talked about this last week, but Moabites are a people group despised by Israel, not only because they were kind of in opposition to them internationally for a number of years, but because their origin story involves Lot, the nephew of Abraham, being made to get drunk by his own daughters who then sleep with him to become pregnant because they're afraid that they're never going to get husbands because they're all hiding in caves. It's complicated. Listen to the podcast. The point is, it's an incestuous relationship between two daughters and their father that gives rise to the entire nation of Moab. So if you're an Israelite and you hear about Moab, you go, Moab is a bad, nasty place. We don't want anything to do with that. It's as other as it gets. There's an us in them. It's as them as you can possibly imagine. So the story opens with an Israelite couple leaving Bethlehem because there's a famine there and going to Moab where their two sons become married to Moabite women. All the men in the family then die and Naomi, the mother, decides to go back to Israel. 
And against all good advice and all kind of reasonable caution, Ruth, one of the two Moabite wives, decides to go back with Naomi. Now, if you are a Moabite widow beggar in Israel, you are putting yourself in the most vulnerable, dangerous situation that you can imagine. And so for her to go back with Naomi shows incredible courage. And the book talks about that. It calls her a valiant woman. And she goes, and when she goes, she actually makes a proclamation of faith that's very similar to Rahab's. She doesn't just say like, hey, I'm sticking with you because I don't know anywhere else to go. No, she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And I'm not going to leave you. To her mother-in-law. So she ends up in Israel. She's a beggar. And through kind of God's intervention in the story, she ends up meeting a man named Boaz, who's also described with the same word. He's a valiant man. And he's also a kinsman redeemer for Naomi, which means he's a family member who's close enough that he can buy back the property on their behalf that they sold when they left to go to Moab. And so to do that, he has to marry Ruth. And man, the story of Ruth gets told like it's a romantic comedy a lot of the time. And so you expect like, you know, that Boaz kind of is checking Ruth out and he's like, he really likes her and can't wait to marry her. You have to understand, Boaz is a wealthy landowner in Israel. And Ruth is a Moabite widow beggar. Last person in the world that he would want to marry. But she makes this incredibly bold marriage proposal, which would be bold by today's standards, but is extra bold in the ancient Near Eastern world. And Boaz redeems the family, pays to get them back in, and marries Ruth. It's an incredible, beautiful story, where again you see the Moabite coming in and in, in, you know, unexpected fashion becoming part of the family. The fire gets stoked again by the last person you would imagine. And you know that's the way the story is being told because of how it ends. The very last verse in Ruth is a genealogy again. And it says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The point of this book, right there on the surface, is this is where David came from. God used this terrible, dark, brutal situation of famine and the loss of spouses and begging and being poor and widowed to bring about Israel's greatest king. Now, I highlighted some of these names because it ties in everything we've talked about so far in a really beautiful way. If you've been paying way close attention, you know who all of those orange names are. Anybody know who Perez is? Judah's son. It's the son of Judah and Tamar. So that first horrible situation leads to Perez. Skip a few generations, and there's a man named Salmon who gives birth. He doesn't give birth. His wife gives birth to Boaz, who's one of the heroes of the story of Ruth. Does anybody know who Salmon's wife is? Rahab, the prostitute of Canaan. We learn that in Matthew's genealogy. Boaz, whose mom was Rahab, the Canaanite, gives birth to Boaz, Boaz marries Ruth, and the two of them give birth to the great-grandfather of David. Now, just think about this for a second. This is Old Testament, very old book, and they put front and center the fact that David's immediate ancestors are the son of a Canaanite prostitute and a Moabite widow beggar. That's how God lights the fire, how he keeps that fire burning, is once again the outsider being brought in, the last person you would expect 
being put front and center in the story. And it leads to the birth of King David. And in the life and rule of King David, you kind of have that fire reach its absolute biggest point. It's like a giant, massive bonfire at this point. David had some incredible struggles early on. He's being chased around by the first king of Israel, Saul. But after David becomes king, everything just goes better than you could possibly imagine. He's the first king to unite all 12 tribes of Israel. So up until that point, some of them worked together sometimes, but they were all kind of, you know, sometimes there was civil war, but at the very best, they were independent of each other. But under David, all of them come together into one nation for the first time. There's prosperity, there's military victory. David is this incredible military leader who's conquering the enemies and expanding the territory of Israel. And if you're thinking about Abraham's promise, you're going like, now it's finally happening. We finally have a good offspring of Abraham who can get Israel to where it needs to be to be that blessing to all the nations that it's supposed to be. At the height of that, when everything's going as good as it possibly could, God makes a covenant with David, sort of like the covenant he made with Abraham. But the covenant he makes with David involves the throne of Israel. He says, your sons, your offspring, will sit the throne of Israel forever. So the promise to Abraham, your family is going to bless all the nations. And then at the high point of David's rule, there's a promise to David that gets that fire burning even bigger. Your offspring is going to sit the throne forever. And man, if you were reading the story for the first time, you'd be like, everything's going to be good now. We finally have a good king. Everything's going beautifully. What could go wrong? And then just four chapters after God makes that promise to David, the unthinkable happens. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Joab is the commander of the military. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, you should right away be noticing something is very, very wrong here. This is the time of the year when the kings go out to battle. Where should David be? He should be out to battle. And not only that, but it says all Israel has gone out to battle. But David's at home. By the way, the nation they're battling with, Ammon, that's the other son that was born to Lot's other daughter after the incestuous relationship. So they're out battling the Ammonites. David's at Jerusalem. Something is very wrong here. And the author wastes no time in showing you what happens when David's not where he's supposed to be and not doing what he's supposed to be doing. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him, and he lay with her. It's this incredibly disappointing moment where David, the guy who's just kind of on this meteoric rise to be the best king ever, commits this horrible act of adultery. And it's even worse than it looks on the surface for a couple of reasons. The first is something very subtle, and I'm going to be brief here because we've talked about it a couple times this year already, but there's a design pattern that starts back in Genesis 3, where different authors over hundreds of years use the same series of Hebrew words to try to evoke the memory of Eve's temptation. And here you see, it says that David saw, ra'ah in Hebrew, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and it says in English, the woman was very beautiful. But in Hebrew, the word being translated beautiful is the word tov, and it can mean beautiful, but at its most basic, it means good. So it says David saw that she was good, and then at the bottom, he 
took her, lacha in Hebrew. It's the same words from the temptation of Eve when she saw that the fruit was good and took it. And you see it over and over again in story after story. It's there with Cain and Abel. It's there with the golden calf. It's there with Achan, who we just talked about a minute ago. And here you have it with David. So when you read this, there's this really subtle pattern being evoked that's supposed to make you see David is committing again the sin of Adam and Eve, falling for the temptation that humanity always falls for. By the way, in first service, I accidentally said Mary took the apple. So if any of you were here for both, sorry about that. Merry Christmas, jeez. So he's committing the sin of Eve again. But there's something else going on that's kind of right on the surface that makes what he did even worse than it sounds at first. Before he sleeps with her, he learns that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And we know who this guy is already from other parts of the book. Uriah is a Hittite, not an Israelite. He's an outsider. Um, But he at some point pledged loyalty to Israel and became a soldier in, in David's army. In fact, he actually became a soldier in David's army before David became king of Israel. He's one of what's called the mighty men, which are these characters in the Old Testament who at some point deserve like a trilogy of movies about them or something because we get these epic like little short snippets about them. But there's a set of three and then a set of 30 of these soldiers who are incredibly loyal to David and are just incredibly impressive on the battlefield. Uriah the Hittite is one of them. So what that means is that the man whose wife David takes and commits adultery with, he's at the very least a valiant soldier who has been faithful and loyal to David since before he was even king. Or at at most, he could be a close friend of David's, or at least have been a friend from that time before. It's not an unknown person. It's not a nobody. David knows who this man is, and he hears that, and he still takes her. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. At this point, again, if you had never read the story, you'd be like, okay, she's pregnant, the jig is up, he's going to call Uriah back, and he's going to tell her, or he's going to tell him, hey, I sinned against you, I committed adultery with your wife, please forgive me. That's what you would hope would happen, but that's not at all what David's doing. David's got a scheme going that he thinks is going to get him out of trouble. He brings Uriah back from the front lines and says, hey man, take a, this is not how the Bible says it at all, actually, but bear with me. Hey man, you know what? You've been working really hard out there, great soldier, take the weekend, hang out, you know, eat, drink, have a good time. Maybe, I don't know, you go home, sleep with your wife. That could be cool for you. Do the, try, you know, you should do that maybe. And the point is, he's trying to tell him, hey, go home so that he'll sleep with his wife so that when his wife starts to show that she's pregnant, he'll believe it's his child. But Uriah, instead of doing that, says what David should have said. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah says, I'm on duty and all Israel is at war. You think I'm just going to go home to my wife and act like that's not happening? No way. There's no way. I would never do that. He sleeps that night with David's servants at the doorway to David's house. And the author wants you to see that Uriah, the Hittite, the outsider, is behaving the way that David should have behaved from the beginning. 
He's on duty. He's faithful. He's thinking about Israel. He's thinking about his brothers who are out there in combat. And David, scheming and plotting, can't even get him to go and sleep with his wife. So again, you want David at this point to be like, oh, you have shamed me, you've humbled me, I can't believe you would do this and be this righteous, I have to confess to you, but David doesn't do that. David digs in even deeper. David writes a letter telling Joab, the commander, when the battle is like at its peak, when it's getting really bad and really rough, I want you to send Uriah to the front and pull everyone else back. So he basically says, make sure Uriah dies in battle. And there's a detail that's really easy to miss that makes this just like a twist of the knife that makes it even more brutal. David writes that letter and seals it and gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. So Uriah goes back to be faithful at the front lines of the battle, holding the letter that seals his fate. And David's plan works. Uriah is killed in battle. And uh, God doesn't miss a thing. He sends a prophet named Nathan to confront David, and David, to his credit, proves himself to be a man after God's own heart by, instead of like blame shifting or pointing the finger the way that most biblical characters do when they're confronted, he owns it. He says, I have sinned against the Lord my God. But man, the consequences of this sin go on and on for the next thousand years. And it's, it's like a bucket of water on that fire that had looked so bright during the high point of David's reign. It starts with his own sons. Remember, the promise to David was your sons will sit the throne forever. And the next series of of kids and grandkids that David has just illustrate how this sin that David committed has effects that go on and on and on. The first one, and and probably the most horrific one, is David's son Amnon becomes overwhelmed with lust and rapes his half-sister, whose name is Tamar. And the symmetry here of, of kind of how this Abraham's offspring who sinned against Tamar, and now David's offspring sins against another woman named Tamar in a horrific fashion. He doesn't provide for her just like Judah. He sends her to, again, a life of isolation and shame. She's going to live like a widow because of this. Absalom, it's another brother, he kills Amnon. And that's not enough. This is David's other son. He, um, partly because David failed to really ever do anything about what Amnon did, uh, Absalom just kind of develops this, this anger that boils over into rebellion. And he attempts to take over the kingdom of Israel. And he gets really, really close to succeeding. It's God's intervention that keeps David on the throne. But at one point, David is kicked out of Jerusalem, Absalom's in power, and Absalom is receiving counsel from this military advisor whose wisdom in military stuff and his advice is so good that people treat his words, the text says, like the words of God, not a human. When people find out that this guy whose name is Ahithophel, when they find out that Ahithophel is advising Absalom, everyone's reaction is like, oh man, we are in so much trouble because Ahithophel is just the man. And when you're reading, there's all these places where Ahithophel, it's clear he's not just like has chosen to work with Absalom because he thinks he's going to win. This guy's got a vendetta against David. At one point, he offers to lead the company that he wants to send to kill David. He says, I'll kill him myself. And you could read that and be like, what? Like, why is he so heated? Why is he so angry at David? Again, there's a tiny detail that's so easy to miss. But there's a genealogy earlier in 2 Samuel that reveals that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. So Ahithophel's a man who saw the evil, the abuse of power, 
that David perpetrated on his family and became a huge part of trying to overthrow David's rule. This sin just keeps causing this cascade of, of horrible effects. Absalom doesn't succeed in taking over the kingship. Solomon ends up taking the throne after David dies. And again, at first, it sort of looks like Solomon's going to do a good job. But man, by the end of his reign, he's got a thousand wives from all these different nations. He's accumulating way more wealth than kings of Israel are supposed to do. The author shows you very specifically, he's breaking all of the commands that kings of Israel are supposed to follow. And it's his son, Rehoboam, whose terrible leadership of the nation results in Israel splitting in half. And from that point on, you get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they fight and battle and never come back together. And for the next thousand years, it just gets worse and worse. The fire gets lower and lower. Wicked king after wicked king takes the throne in Israel and in Judah. You get occasional bright spots, but for the most part, it's just a downhill journey into darkness. It gets so bad that um, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom is destroyed by a nation called Assyria, kind of the world superpower at the time, and they're taken into exile. A little bit later, in 586 BC, the, the later world superpower, Babylon, does the same thing to the southern kingdom. They destroy the city. They take all the kind of best and brightest into captivity to be assimilated into Babylonian culture. They destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple. Fires out. If you're a Jew, this is the end of the world when the temple is destroyed. And it doesn't really get better when they come back from exile. They get released 70 years later, and they're back home, and they sort of rebuild the temple, but the spirit of God never, the power, the kind of glory manifestation never happens on that temple the way it did with the first temple. Um, and they're never independent at that point. They're just under the thumb of whatever superpower is in charge at the time. So it's Persia, then it's Greece, then it's Rome. And by the first century, you have had four hundred years of silence from God. The last prophet, Malachi, speaks from God, and then 400 years of complete silence. You've got to realize, those of us who are American, we have no concept of numbers that big in time. Our national history doesn't go back that far. You know what I mean? 400 years where the people of Israel wait and wait, and the fire just goes out. And that's actually why this is kind of our Christmas sermon. Because the moment that that fire shoots back into existence, it's 400 years after Malachi's done talking. A star shines over Bethlehem, and in the middle of nowhere, a mother from nowhere gives birth. And God Almighty breathes Earth's air into tiny human lungs and exhales the cries of a newborn baby. And that fire just <laughs> lights again. And it is in the most unexpected, shocking, outsider, insider way you could imagine. It's not a king at the front of an army on horseback getting ready to destroy Rome. It's not even a baby born into like the lap of luxury in a royal palace with royal parents. It is a nobody from nowhere, born into scandal and poverty. Um, it just backwater in northern Israel with the full weight of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen holding them down. Oppressed people, poor people, people who are scandalized by a, a pregnancy out of wedlock. That's how God fulfills his promise to Abraham and his promise 
to David. It's the last thing you'd expect. But if you've been watching story after story that we've just told, it's actually exactly what you should expect God to do because he's always taking the unexpected and doing what nobody thought he would do. He's always taking the outsider and moving them inside and taking the insider and moving them outside. Here's a great example that Matthew uses. When Jesus is born, there is actually a king in Israel. He's kind of a puppet king. He really works for Rome. But there's somebody who's a king named Herod. What does he do when he finds out that somebody's born who people think is going to be king? What's he start doing? Anybody remember? He hears there's somebody born in Bethlehem and people think he might be king. What does he start doing? He starts having all of the baby boys murdered in that whole region. Who does that sound like? Pharaoh. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the wicked king of Egypt at the time of the Exodus is Pharaoh. And he, when he gets threatened by Israel, he starts having all the baby boys murdered. This is like the archetype of human evil. Pharaoh, in the mind of the Israelite people, it doesn't get worse than Pharaoh. And you see at the birth of Jesus, the king of Israel behaving exactly like Pharaoh. And if that wasn't obvious enough, where does God tell Mary and Joseph to flee with the baby Jesus for safety from him? Egypt. Come on. It's like, it's amazing, that reversal, that you have the king of Israel is Pharaoh and the safe place to flee to is Egypt. Everything is upside down. In is out, bad is good, and God is about to do the unexpected using the least impressive, least known, least invited person you could imagine, a baby boy born in Israel. So it's no mistake that the very first sentence of the New Testament identifies Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew wants to start you out by seeing this is God keeping his promises. Even when it looked dark, even when the night was as dark as you could possibly imagine, God kept his promise to David and he kept his promise to Abraham. And then following that, he gives you a list of names that should be the most encouraging list of names you could possibly imagine. This genealogy could have been cleaned up by Matthew if he wanted to. And he did like the exact opposite of cleaning it up. He's like, let's just plaster the most embarrassing people right on the front. So you have four women, again. And I challenge you to find me a first century biography that has four women in it. And not only women, but Canaanites, Moabites, Gentiles, people who aren't part of the family of Israel. And then if that wasn't enough, horribly immoral people. People who are prostitutes and adulterers and commit incest and sell their brothers off into slavery. The worst people you could imagine. Why do you think, on that note, Matthew calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah? He doesn't do that. He doesn't call Rahab the wife of Salmon. He doesn't call Ruth the wife of Boaz. But he calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. I'm convinced that it's because if you're reading this genealogy and thinking, oh my gosh, a prostitute, a Moabite, widows, people who have committed all this sexual immorality, and then you get to David, and you feel like a thrill of excitement as a Jewish reader, and go like, okay, good, finally we have like our king, the person who's impressive, like this is what it's all going to be about now, is the king, like the best king Israel ever had. And then Matthew does not let you forget what David did. He doesn't just say by Bathsheba, he says by the wife of Uriah, the faithful, valiant Hittite soldier. And the point is that the king of Israel and the prostitute of Jericho are on equal footing before God. If it's by merit 
No one's getting into this family. Not David any more than Rahab. Not David any more than Tamar. David's every bit as hopeless and out of luck as everyone else on the list, and Matthew wants you to know that. That's why he highlights the sin of David. It's not a slight towards Bathsheba. He's making a point about David. And so if you look at this list, man, it should be the most encouraging thing ever this Christmas. There's kind of the three things. There's endless things we could take from these stories, but there's three things I really want us to focus on. The first one is that absolutely everyone is welcome into the family of God. There's no way to read these stories and not see that. From Rahab, the Canaanite, to Tamar, the widow, to Ruth, the Moabite, they're welcomed into the family of God. And not just welcomed in, but proudly displayed on page one of the New Testament. Some of you are like me, um, and you're kind of wired, like anxious and shameful, and, and so you can, you can get that, you know, Jesus saved me, so I'm in the family of God, but I'm just going to kind of stand in the back and hope that nobody notices me, because like, you know, God's going to see me and be like, how'd this guy get in here? And Jesus is going to be like, it's okay, he's in, I, I'm good for it, and God will be like, okay, but keep an eye on him. Like, that's how I picture myself. Like, I, I do uh, genuinely, I don't doubt the grace of God for me, but, there, but something in my gut emotionally feels like God's, I ha, he has to let me in because of Jesus, but man, he's kind of you know, watching me out of the corner of his eye. David, Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Judah, all of these people of shameful past who have done horrible things and who have had horrible things done to them are proudly displayed right on the family Christmas card page one of the New Testament. And so you need to get the idea that you are unlovable by God, that you are not welcome into God's family because of something you've done or something that's been done to you. You need to get that out of your head forever. God is proud to have these women in his family. He wants you to see them. He wants you to see what he's done with them. And he wants you to see, look at the, the beauty and complexity of who I use to bring my son into this world. And so you are welcome into the family of God with your flaws, with your past, with your mistakes, and you are a proud, full member of that family. Second thing is that everyone is loved, and not just loved, but specifically what I have in mind here is, is seen and protected and valued by God. This whole series, we've seen story after story of people, particularly vulnerable women in the ancient world, being mistreated by members of Abraham's family. People who are not being cared for, who are not being watched out for. Judah just sends Tamar away and doesn't care. And time and time again, we see that God sees them, cares for them, protects them, and brings them into the fold, brings them into his family. And so, man, when Christmas hits, I know in a room this size, there are people for whom this is just an incredibly difficult season where you feel like you're invisible, uncared for, unloved, not a part of anything. And you just have got to know God sees you. God loves you. God has been the protector of the vulnerable from the beginning. God is the protector of women, widows, orphans, people like David and people like Bathsheba. God sees you and cares for you. And as a church, we want to do the best we possibly can at, at demonstrating that by being the hands and feet of God to show you that you are loved and valued and protected. 
And so if you need help, if you need someone, please reach out to us. But know that God sees you and loves you. Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl that Abraham and Sarah used to try to kind of shortcut the promises of God and then kick out when she is on her deathbed and afraid that she's going to watch her son die of exposure in the desert. God shows up and provides for her. And she names God El Roi, God who sees me. Know that God sees you. God loves the vulnerable. God loves those who feel unloved. And finally, and we've said this week after week, you and your story can absolutely be used by God to accomplish his will. Some of you guys have messed up family stories. Some of you guys have messed up personal stories. I challenge you to tell me a story that's more messed up than some of these ones. And these are people who God used to bring the savior of the universe into the world. If you feel like God can't use you, if you feel like God doesn't love you, look at these men and women and say, oh man, God can absolutely use me. God can absolutely do something incredible through my life. Ushers are gonna pass out communion. And I wanna kind of close and kind of... (laughs) in a way, push us toward Christmas by remembering what it is that made the son of God, the son of Abraham, the son of David, what made him able to fulfill those great promises. How does Jesus become a blessing to every nation on earth? By going to the cross and submitting himself to crucifixion, to a horrible, painful, shameful way of dying. That's how he becomes a blessing to all the nations of the world. And in his resurrection, he ascends and takes his seat at the right hand of God where he will reign forever, just like God promised David his offspring would. So here's the thing. This is this massive, incomprehensible cosmic truth that becomes incredibly personal in the stories of each of these characters we've been looking at. Because of Jesus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the God of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. This is a God who looks upon the vulnerable and cares for them, who looks upon sinners like you and me and says, I will do what is necessary to bring them into my family. So all of us have done wrong, and all of us have had wrong done to us, but typically you kind of define yourself by one or the other at different times. So I want to encourage you today, whether you are Judah or Tamar, God loves you. God invites you. God has done what is necessary to bring you into his family. Whether you are Uriah or David, whether you're Rahab or Achan, God has done what is necessary to invite you into his family and to welcome you with open arms, to be proud of you. And I just want to make that same invitation to each one of you today. If you know God already, if you're already a follower of Jesus, man, recognize the beautiful thing that Christmas is. Because God came to earth as a vulnerable baby, the last thing anyone would expect, he kept his promises to Abraham and to David. And if you don't know Jesus, man, this is what a great opportunity, what a great time to say, you know what, I want in this family. I want to be a part of of the family of a God who celebrates and displays broken, messed up people like me on the front page of the New Testament. You're invited. You are welcome. 
all the work necessary to bring you into the family of God was accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross. And that's what this is about. That's why we do this week after week, to remember, not just with our minds, but with our mouths, with our hands, to have an embodied memory of what Jesus did for us. So let's stand together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. He said, this is my body broken for you, for you. I want you to take those words and recognize that they apply to you individually. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. And Jesus took the wine and said, this is my blood poured out for a new covenant. There's a new covenant, you guys. Jesus did what was necessary for you to claim its benefits and come into the family of God. And it was through the spilling of his blood that that was able to happen. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to send you all out to Christmas to great times and awkward times with your family. Um, and I just want you to go knowing that if you trust Jesus, he, God is for you. God loves you. You are a proud, full member of the family of God. Prayer uh, team is going to be up here in the front. Um, again, I know this is a time of year when sometimes we need extra prayer. Please come forward and ask one of these brothers and sisters to pray for you. Um, and yeah, know that you are loved by the God of the universe. Let's pray. Father, I recognize that um, Christmas is something that, that has been so dramatically co-opted by our culture that it can be hard for me to connect to what it actually is. But when I think about a God who sees and loves the least of these and a God who became the least, a God who took on human form, who didn't come as a mighty warrior but came as a screaming baby, Lord, I see in that a picture of your goodness and your love for us, the lengths that you would go to save us. So I pray that everyone in this room would come to a greater knowledge of that, whether that's the first time someone has come to know you and trust you or someone who's known you for their whole lives but needs to be reminded of your goodness and your love for them. I pray that that would happen today, this week, and on Christmas. We love you. We thank you for everything you've done for us in history. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you guys on Christmas Eve.